This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. How very much I've loved you. How very much I've tried my best to give you the good life. It was said by the greatest of prophets from time immemorial, no man takes my life from me, I lay my life down. If we can't live in peace, then let's die in peace. We've been so betrayed. We have been so terribly betrayed. Before starting this episode, I need to provide a warning that it contains extremely disturbing content relating to mass suicide and murder. Back in the year 1978, news bulletins across the world reported on an incident in South America where hundreds of people had reportedly committed mass suicide. Good evening. In the jungles around the Jonestown death camp in Guyana tonight, hundreds of Americans who escaped last Saturday's orgy of suicide and murder are still missing after more than 72 hours. As preparations went forward slowly to bring the bodies of their 409 dead comrades back to the United States. Nobody knows for sure how many Americans are out in the jungle in this impassable part of South America. Estimates range from 375 to 775. Police and Guyanian army units are searching, but it is rough country and the rainy season is just beginning. A team of 200 American soldiers is in Guyana tonight to help with the bodies. And at the Jonestown camp today, it was pretty awful. Fred Francis was there. lay rotting in the sun just where they died. The Guyana government wanted the world to see the most incredible mass suicide in history. The Americans, 383 of them, took their own lives and each other's late Saturday afternoon. The majority apparently died willingly at the urging of Jim Jones, the religious zealot who was their leader. Today, American military pathologists came to examine and direct the removal of the decomposing bodies. It was the most macabre sight any of the doctors, soldiers, and reporters had ever seen. Entire families took the poison together, laid down, some embracing, others holding hands, and died. Police say there were guards with crossbows present during the suicides, but apparently everyone who came to the Jonestown Community Center that night knew they were going to die. Some of them that died after others had little blankets thrown over them to cover them, and they all seemed to arrange themselves comfortably. Jim Jones' wife was lying on a blanket right next to him, the steps, and she's very peacefully lying with her hand outstretched. Some of them who had girlfriends were lying with their girlfriends, their arms around each other, and that sort of thing. There is little doubt how most of the people died. There were empty bottles of potassium cyanide in the library, and dozens of bottles of tranquilizers. One survivor said the people were given tranquilizers, then waited to be given a small cup of Kool-Aid mixed with cyanide. About two gallons of the mixture was not used. No one knows how many people escaped into the jungle, escaped the mass suicide. One witness said about a dozen. Others believe there are hundreds out there. 
the government plans to fly over in a helicopter or a plane with loudspeakers, telling them they can come out, that it's safe now. Fred Francis, NBC News, Jonestown, Guyana. At the time of that news report, there was still speculation about just how many had died, but the initial numbers turned out to be grossly underestimated. The final death toll was confirmed at 918, of which some 300 or so were children. Until the 9-11 attacks on the New York Twin Towers, the tragedy in Jonestown represented the largest number of American civilian casualties in a single non-natural event. What happened on that fateful day has been well documented. There have been countless books written and many films which have recounted the harrowing details of the last days of so many people. But the world wouldn't have such a comprehensive account of what happened had it not been for one crucial factor, survivors. Against all odds, some people did survive. Despite being loyal followers, some people refused to lay down and die, either hiding or running away to safety in the jungle surrounding the camp. In this episode, you will hear their stories, the first-hand accounts of exactly what happened, as well as the People's Temple followers who tell their stories. One particular account comes from someone within Jim Jones's own trusted inner circle, but their accounts are made even more poignant with video and audio which was discovered at the compound. Most sickening of all was an audio recording where Jim Jones can be heard preaching to his followers, urging them to end their lives. This recording lasts for 45 minutes and has been referred to as the death tape. But first, just who was this man Jim Jones and how did the People's Temple come to be? It was during the Great Depression in the early 1930s that a baby boy was born into a poor family in a small rural town in the state of Indiana. He was named James Warren Jones, but later in life would come under notoriety by the name Jim Jones. His father had served in World War I, but after being injured, he became an invalid and was unable to work. So it was his mother who worked to support the family, although she often derided her husband's inability to make a living. She was described as a very domineering woman, and there was much tension in the home which saw his father turn to alcohol for solace. The family's financial difficulties saw them evicted for failure to pay mortgage repayments, and they were forced to live in a rundown shack that had no plumbing or electricity. The town where they lived only had a population of roughly 1,000 people, so you can imagine there really wasn't a lot there. But quite interestingly, there were five churches. Living in such a small town, there wasn't a lot for young people to do, so the young Jim Jones developed the ability to entertain himself, especially since he didn't have any siblings. With his mother away from home working, and with an alcoholic father, the young Jim wandered the streets of the town, often naked. It was clear to others that the family were poor, and that Jim was neglected by his parents. But it was the female residents of the town who frequently invited him into their homes to give him food, clothing and other gifts. With not a lot to do, it's not surprising that Jim got up to mischief, including stealing from local stores for which he received a belting from his mother. 
he also used profanity with friends and neighbours, saying such things as, Hello, you son of a bitch! Although this type of behaviour was inevitable, as his own mother was known for the use of profanity herself. Later in life, he described his childhood as follows, quote, I was from a small town in Indiana. The moment I think of it, a great deal of pain comes. As a child, I was undoubtedly one of the poor in the community, never accepted, born, as it were, on the wrong side of the tracks. I was ready to kill by the end of the third grade. I mean, I was so aggressive and hostile, I was ready to kill. Nobody gave me love, any understanding. I didn't know what the hell love was. In those days, a parent was supposed to go with a child to school functions. There was some kind of school performance, and everybody's parent was there but mine. I'm standing there alone, always was alone. It would then be one simple act by a neighbour which would influence the course of the young boy's life. A neighbour took Jim to a church service, unaware of the profound impact church and religion would have on the youngster. He became mesmerised with what he saw at church, particularly the pastors and how they conducted the services. From that moment on, he went to church as often as he could and absorbed everything he saw and heard, and it wasn't long before he expressed a desire to become a pastor himself when he grew up. It was then that he served his own apprenticeship, conducting mock church services with the children in his neighbourhood. It was clear that he loved being the centre of attention and developed a flair for the dramatic. However, he went one step further by also doing funeral ceremonies for dead animals. A crowd of his peers watched as he buried the animals. But due to the frequency of these ceremonies, the kids soon questioned how he seemed to always have a constant supply of dead animals for the services. And they regretfully concluded that he must have killed the animals himself. His peers remember how he told outlandish stories, including that he had the ability to fly, and on one occasion he jumped off a building to demonstrate this ability, but ended up breaking his arm. He also claimed that he had stolen a church minister's Bible and covered it with cow manure. On another occasion, he said he had substituted a cup of his own urine for the holy water at a Catholic church. All of this behaviour saw the young boy being viewed as rather odd. He was viewed as rather eccentric and controlling in nature, and he didn't ride bicycles or participate in normal activities with his peers, instead spending much of his time on his own or frequenting the five different churches in his town. Later in life, he described feeling as an outcast in his neighbourhood, which would have a rather curious effect on him. As a result, he came to identify with the underdog, and he would protect other children who were being bullied. He even took home stray pets and beggars, much to the disgust of his parents. He also recognised the prevailing racism of the time against African Americans and would befriend black children. However, the first time he brought a black friend home, his father reacted rather angrily, and he never did this again. With a very volatile home life, it didn't come as a surprise when Jim's parents separated. He then moved with his mother to another larger town 
and enrolled at a local high school. He continued his fascination with religion and became an avid reader, seeking to absorb all he could about people such as Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler and Gandhi. At high school, Jones was regarded as quiet and very studious, working towards his goal of going to college to embark on a medical career. A classmate of his recalls here, quote, We all called him Doc. We all thought he was going to be a doctor. He talked in medical terms all the time. He was very quiet, very reserved, and not overly involved. Nothing like the descriptions of the last few days. Back then, he just didn't seem to be that type of individual. When he graduated high school, his yearbook entries said, Jim's six-syllable medical vocabulary astounds us all. But it was also noted that he had the skills to be a preacher, as a high school girl remembered, quote, We were at a pep rally before a basketball game, and Jimmy decided to stage an elaborate funeral for the other school. He got up and started preaching and did an incredible job. He had the control and inflection. It was like the real thing, but was all intended to be a joke. He was very self-assured on stage. He had that coal black hair and piercing eyes that would look right through you. At the age of 16, he got a job working at a hospital as an orderly. And this was where he met a nurse named Marceline Boswell who was four years older than him at age 20. They became sweethearts, and he married her when he was 18 years old. But it's interesting to note that the two of them were actually related. They were reportedly third cousins, but actually hadn't known this. She would go on to fulfil her wedding vow of Till Death Do Us Part, by dying with her husband on that fateful day at Jonestown, in November 1978. After high school, Jones and his wife moved to the city of Indianapolis so he could attend university, but he changed his mind about medicine, instead becoming a qualified secondary education teacher. During his time at university, Jones was impressed by a speech which Eleanor Roosevelt gave about the plight of African Americans and he began to show support for communism and other radical political views. He came to view the Chinese communist leader, Mao Zedong, as a hero after he founded the People's Republic of China in 1949. As a result, Jones began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. However, it was the church where he would concentrate all of his energies, and he eventually became a student pastor at a Methodist church. Jones would become influenced by a black preacher named Father Divine, who had built a multiracial congregation. Having grown up as an outsider himself, Jones empathised with the poor, the downtrodden and with blacks. More and more he began to preach about integration and racial equality which was not a popular idea at that time. Therefore, it was inevitable that he would come to blows with his church leadership, who supported segregation. This led him to found his own church called the People's Temple, which promoted social justice, racial and class equality, and desegregation. It was the first integrated church in the state of Indiana, 
and as a result, Jones became a hero to the black community. The People's Temple was to run for almost 20 years until that fateful day in 1978. During that time, the congregation had been predominantly black at around 80%. During this time, he continued to be outspoken on his beliefs and became prominent in the emerging civil rights movement, even before Martin Luther King became a national figure. His success was all the more significant as Indianapolis had once been the site of the KKK's national office. His vision was socialist in nature. He believed that American capitalism caused an unhealthy balance in the world, where the rich had too much money and the poor worked hard to receive so little. The People's Temple offered a very different utopian view of what society could become. Jones rose in stature across Indianapolis and soon rubbed shoulders with politicians and other civil rights leaders. And this high profile led him to be appointed as the head of the Indianapolis Human Rights Commission. In this role, Jones desegregated movie theatres, restaurants and hospitals. His own church, the People's Temple, ran soup kitchens for the poor and also homes for the elderly and mentally ill. However, Jones and the Temple were targeted with intimidation and assaults from those who were threatened by integration. His views on racial equality extended to his own family. Jones and his wife would go on to adopt six children of various ethnicities, including three Korean children, a white boy, an African-American boy, and a Native American girl. They went on to have their own biological son, whom they named Stephen Gandy Jones, and the black boy was named Jim Jones Jr. They made history with this boy, being the first white family in the state of Indiana to adopt a black child. But it's rather interesting that their biological son was born first, yet Jones chose to give the black boy his own name of Jim Jones Jr. So you can make of that what you wish. Due to Marceline's health problems, they didn't have any other biological children. They called themselves the Rainbow Family and urged others to adopt interracially. Following World War II, the rivalry between the US and Russia resulted in the so-called Cold War, which would go on to last for four decades. It was during this time that Jim feared an all-out nuclear war would erupt. As a result, he was keen to move his family and the People's Temple Church to a safer location. A particular magazine at that time listed several places in the world which were considered to be safe from a nuclear war, with South America being one of those places. Jones then decided to go to Brazil to search for possible relocation sites. He ultimately found a location in the South American country of Guiana. A property was leased from the Guyanese government with the view of moving the whole temple congregation at some point in the future. Meanwhile, Jones concluded that Indianapolis was no longer safe and he decided to move the church to California. This location in Northern California had also been listed as a safe spot from a nuclear war. Jones went as far as to predict that the nuclear holocaust would occur on the date of 
July the 15th, 1967. And afterwards, he said the earth would become a socialist paradise. So, to protect his flock, the temple was moved to a place in California called Redwood Valley. Here they set up a communal style of living, where members lived together in various houses on the property. Jones preached about a simple existence, free of material things. He told people they didn't need their houses or money anymore, that those things didn't make them happy. Instead, he encouraged them to give them to the temple so that he could carry through his humanitarian services to the poor, the old and downtrodden. Members donated wages and income from outside jobs. Some members even signed over custody of their own children to him. Jones also required his followers to call him either father or dad. Later, Jones began to describe himself as the reincarnation of Christ, as well as Buddha, Gandhi and Lenin. And then, in the last few years, he claimed that he was God himself. In one speech, he was quoted as saying, I must say, it is a great effort to be God. No one else has the faculty that I do. I shall be God, and beside me, there will be no other. It was then in the year 1976 when Jones opened another chapter of the People's Temple in a black neighbourhood in San Francisco. He told his members they needed to reach more people and spread the message in order to receive political support to affect social change. There, he received attention from black leaders and politicians who were very interested in his racially mixed congregation and his preachings about society under a socialist god. From this, he gained a celebrity status and was seen in the presence of elected officials and eventually was appointed to the San Francisco Housing Authority. The temple members participated in demonstrations in support of the freedom of the press, Native American rights, and the anti-development efforts. Local, state, and national politicians frequented the temple, where they were warmly greeted. The temple ran social and medical programs for the needy, including a free dining hall, drug rehabilitation, and legal aid services. The temple continued to expand, opening another church in Los Angeles, and Jones began also travelling the length of California in a temple-owned bus, attracting new members along the way. As more and more members joined, there was a need to buy a larger fleet of buses, which toured cities across America. He had these empty buses, and people would become members and go with him. Along the way, they raised money through various means, including selling photos of Jones himself, saying the photos would bring them blessings. Jones also introduced so-called faith healings to his church services, after seeing them used successfully at other churches to attract more people and therefore money to their church. He claimed he had the power to cure people of all sorts of ailments and diseases. But what he really did was to prey upon vulnerable people and put on highly staged events which would fake miracle cures. He claimed to cure people of blindness, rid them of cancer, or allow the disabled to miraculously walk again. In one particular case, a woman in the congregation had a cast on her broken leg and Jones cut the cast off 
and she was able to miraculously run around, all to the cheers of the crowd. However, the real story behind this incident is that the woman was drugged and the cast was put on her leg without her knowing. When she woke up, they told her she had fallen and broken her leg, but she had no recollection of what had happened. She believed she had broken her leg and that Jones had healed her. In another case, Jones cured a woman of cancer, but when the cancer returned, she believed the reason was that she didn't believe enough. So she refused medical treatment and believed her prayers and faith would allow Jones to cure her. But of course, she died. From the outside, Jim Jones and his people's temple looked like an amazing success. The reality, however, was quite different. In fact, the church was transforming into a cult centred around Jim Jones. Over time, Jones started consuming larger and larger quantities of drugs, both amphetamines and barbiturates, and soon the drugs caused major mood swings. His health deteriorated and his paranoia also began to increase. Looking at photos of him during that time, he was well known for wearing dark glasses, which became his signature look. But what people didn't know was that those glasses were worn to hide his eyes due to his drug use, which were red, watery and swollen. But he told members that he wore the glasses because the spirit of the Lord was so powerful in him that if you looked directly into his eyes, you would be burned on the spot. As well as the fear of nuclear attacks, Jones also started to believe that the entire government, especially the CIA and the FBI, was after him and that they wanted to destroy the temple. So he used this fear to keep his followers loyal, saying to them, it's us against the world. He wanted them to believe that they were being persecuted, that black people would be put in concentration camps and have identification numbers tattooed on them. He told them he himself had received death threats because of his stance on racial equality and that he feared he would become another casualty just as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X had been. One day during a church service, gunshots suddenly rang out and Jones was hit. Everyone was in panic, believing he had been assassinated. And then the next thing they saw was one of his minders holding up his bloodied shirt with two bullet holes in the shirt. And then, all of a sudden, Jones appears in front of the crowd, completely healed. He claimed that he had healed himself of the gunshots. They were convinced he was God. But of course, the whole thing had been staged. As is often the case with cult leaders, Jones had a never-ending supply of temple members with whom he would have sexual relations. These actions were justified by claims that specific members needed to be drawn closer to the cause through relations with him and that it would lead to their personal growth. How sickening is that? Jones also encouraged partner sharing, going as far as to say that monogamy was selfish. He said, quote, Perfect sharing. No more jealousy. My wife wants you, you want my wife, and I love you both. Happy, happy. When you love somebody, you don't want to hold them. You want to free them. But it's interesting to note that he slept with men as well. This activity was never hidden. In fact, 
he actively justified it as seen in this quote. I am an aggressive heterosexual with a man or a woman. I don't care. Whatever you want me to be. I would do that for socialism. I've had to crawl in bed with men and put up with this for the cause. I've had to lay with women I hated until my skin crawled. There was even one occasion when he was arrested for soliciting gay sex in a theatre restroom, but the charges were ultimately dropped. It was also well known that he had a number of mistresses, some which bore him children, and we will find out later how his wife felt about all of this. Throughout those early days of the People's Temple, Jones began planning to migrate his flock out of the US to a place where they could build their own utopia. As already seen, he found a location in South America, in a country called Guyana, in a remote jungle area. He chose Guyana because it was socialist, the only national English-speaking country in South America, mostly with black citizens, and the president himself was black. During sermons, he would describe it as their beautiful promised land, and he gave it the name Jonestown. He shared his vision with the congregation, for Jonestown to be a place without racism, sexism and ageism, and also a safe haven from the media and anyone he perceived would be trying to destroy what they had built. In 1976, Jones sent a group of 50 members to begin building the Jonestown compound. His own biological son Stephen was one of those who went. They worked together to help build this new community for themselves. Stephen later described how they felt a great sense of accomplishment, that they were building something wonderful. But while Jonestown was being built, things back in the US were starting to deteriorate for Jones and his people's temple. Some members began to leave the temple as Jones's behaviour became increasingly bizarre and as he exerted more and more control over his flock. Members were forced to sign power of attorney statements deeds of trust, guardianship papers, and so on. He also started separating children from their parents to be raised communally, and to stop people leaving, he planted false defectors to catch them out. Members were then forced to sign blank papers, which could then be written on to say that they had confessed to terrible crimes, such as murders and molesting children. This was done to blackmail people to stop them leaving. Soon, a growing number of temple defectors accused him of pressuring male and female members alike to have sex with him and of publicly shaming, undressing, beating and sexually abusing members in punishment of various misdeeds. The following audio shows an example of Jones publicly shaming a member. The stuff that, that got to me the most was the, the public beatings during meetings. He would say, Johnny Smith, come up here front and center. And so then the people in the congregation would say, get up there, get up there. And then he would say, I'm just disappointed in you. This is unacceptable behavior. And you're going to be punished for this. If it got really intense, people would be beaten. Get in there, Mary. Hold it in there. That's it. Get in there. <laughs> and they're beat till they're bloodied. And Jim's snickering that sick giggle that he had in the background. 
They'd get him a hell of a time up here. Hold in there, boys. Black and white together, you're having a little trouble. <laughs> they turned him blue. <laughs> we, uh, we lost one white one. We got one black and one blue. He was just a very sick, demented child in a man's body. Jim was the abuser, and we were the victims. And every time he would slap us down in one way or other, we're scrambling trying to figure out, what do I need to do better? What am I not doing to make him happy? We were in a, this enormous abusive relationship. That's the best fight I ever saw, put up by a 70-some-year-old. <laughs> hold in there, Simon. You are my sight. That was no reason for that, you traitor. There was no reason for that. Damn you. That, what, what was your reason for doing that? I was trying to keep some humanity around here. Don't lie to this office anymore. We're tired of putting up with this Don't lie to this office anymore. You hear me? Get your ass over there and sit down and see how well you work. People don't appreciate goodness. Set your ass down. You go along because you don't want the same thing to happen to you. How many times have I gone along just because everybody else is saying it's the right thing to do? It's like, well, okay, I've got to be the one with the problem here. My father wasn't the only person who was cruel in the people's temple. There's cruelty in me. Jones would then come over and put his arms around the person and say, quote, I realize that you went through a lot, but it was for the cause. Father loves you and you're a stronger person now. I can trust you more now that you've gone through and accepted this discipline. And the punished child or adult would always say, Thank you, Father. At first, people rationalised the beatings. They thought Jones must be doing the right thing because these people were testifying that the beatings had caused their life to make a reversal in the right direction. When allegations from defectors hit the media, Jones just referred to them as a government conspiracy to topple the people's temple. But more and more allegations surfaced and Jones was hounded for interviews to tell his side of the story. He then decided to move to the Jonestown compound, only temporarily until everything died down. However, the worst was yet to come, when a prominent newspaper at the time published a damning expose of the People's Temple, as told by the many defectors. Jones then decided he couldn't return to the US, and instead invited his loyal followers to make a permanent move to Guyana to avoid what he termed as the persecution of the people's temple. This forced mass migration of the temple members came sooner than Jones had anticipated. As such, the construction of the compound had still been in progress, but now they were forced to live there under very basic conditions. But this didn't faze them. They worked together under a common goal to create their so-called Garden of Eden far from the vices of the Western world. And that now brings us to the end of part one. So in part two, we will see what happened in Guyana and how the tide continued to turn against Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.